girls with ADHD do tend to look different than boys with ADHD, generally, but not always. They do seem to have more of those inattentive symptoms. And when I say inattentive symptoms, these are things like trouble staying focused for longer periods of time, easily getting distracted, difficulty organizing. Inattentive girls, they might kind of get labeled as, as spacey or seem kind of really forgetful, just often appear overwhelmed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Parenting Translator Newsletter. I'm Dr. Kara Goodwin, and I'm here with Dr. Julia Schechter. She is the co-director of the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD. Dr. Schechter, could you please tell us um, a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes, thank you so much for having me, Kara. Um, so yes, I'm Julia Schechter. I'm a clinical psychologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. I'm a clinician and a researcher, and I am also the co-director of the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD. And the, the center is really focused on promoting evidence-based information about ADHD and girls and women uh, engaging in outreach with patients and the public and also um, doing research. Wow, that is so needed. Um, I feel like there's so little awareness about girls and women with ADHD. So that's so incredible. So first, before we jump into um, some very important questions I have about you, for you about girls with ADHD, um, could you just tell us quickly, because there's so many misconceptions out there, what exactly is ADHD? How would a psychologist who's an expert on this, like yourself, diagnose ADHD? So yes, so ADHD stands for attention, deficit hyperactivity disorder. And it is a neurodevelopmental disorder, which just means it has to do with how the brain is developing. So it's a brain-based disorder. And what research has found is that there really are brain differences in the people of ADHD compared to those who don't have ADHD. It is a really common neurodevelopmental condition. So estimates are about 10% of children and adolescents and about 4% of adults in the United States actually have ADHD. Um, and people with ADHD can experience high levels of inattention, high levels of hyperactive and impulsive behavior, or some individuals have challenges with both things. And we really think of ADHD as a disorder of regulation. So this is like having challenges regulating your attention and your behavior. Uh, so if you think about a child who has challenges with regulation with attention, they might have a really hard time not paying attention to the exciting thing going on outside their window and re-regulating their attention to their teacher or inhibiting uh, an impulsive behavior, right? Stopping themselves from doing something they know they probably shouldn't do, or maybe regulating their really energetic behavior in a setting that that's not appropriate for. So we really think about it as a challenge with regulation um, that ultimately results in kind of really inconsistent behavior. So we see a lot of difficulties for people with ADHD in performing tasks consistently. With ADHD, uh, challenges first emerge during childhood, though they might not actually cause difficulties until kind of adolescence and adulthood. Um, and to, to get a diagnosis of ADHD, we really have to see that there is some sort of clear evidence that it's causing impairment, what we call functional impairment, which is really like it's messing things up. It's getting in the way 
uh, for people in some capacity. And we do know that, that ADHD is associated with a lot of functional impairment, um, especially if it's not well-managed. So we actually know that it can be related to social and emotional difficulties, um, academic underachievement. Um, in adulthood, we know that it can cause financial hardships and employment challenges. There actually was a recent systematic review that found compared to the general population that individuals living with ADHD were actually twice as likely to die earlier. So this mm -hmm. is like a really, this can be a really big deal. And, and I say this not to, to scare parents, even though I know this sounds scary, but I do think it's important to highlight that ADHD is real. It's a real biologically based condition, and it can have a really tremendous impact on lives if it's not identified and it's not properly treated and, and supported. Wow. That is, that is all so helpful. Um, so when most of us think about ADHD, though, we think about, you know, a little boy who has a lot of energy and difficulty sitting at school, you know, sitting still at school. This is kind of like the picture we come up with when we think about ADHD. So why is that stereotype out there? And is ADHD actually more common in boys than girls? Yes, this is absolutely the picture that I think a lot of us have when we think about ADHD, this little boy. And usually I will say it's usually like a little, a little white boy, right? Running around the room and not listening. Um, and I think we have this stereotype for a couple different reasons. One is that our understanding of what ADHD looks like is based on research studies that have been done with mostly boys. Um, so this has really centered our understanding of you know, the clinical presentation of ADHD on males. Um, and if you think about it, like what, you know, we, Kara, we were trained on when we were in graduate school or what medical providers were trained on were these research studies that were based on, on male samples. And so this is really kind of pushed along that, that myth that ADHD is really a boy disorder. Also, we know that females with ADHD often present with the more and the less disruptive presentation. So these, they are more likely to have the inattentive symptoms compared to the hyperactive and impulsive symptoms that we see more often in boys. And so this ultimately kind of, you know, this, this gets more of the attention. They're more likely to be the ones who, you know, are sent to the principal's office or, or get calls home from teachers. And so this influences who ultimately is referred for evaluation. We also know that, you know, assessing those inattentive symptoms that we see more often in girls is just harder. It's harder to evaluate those. It's a lot easier to kind of to measure and, and evaluate those more overt symptoms. And then one other thing to mention here is that the girls with ADHD often do have more co-occurring uh, mood and anxiety symptoms. And this kind of further hinders you know, our ability to really accurately diagnose with girls with ADHD. There are these other things we have to kind of separate the symptoms from. Ultimately, yes, boys are diagnosed more frequently with ADHD than girls. The rates here vary a little bit in the literature, but it is about kind of three to one. So three boys to one girl at this point during childhood. Interestingly, uh, once you get to adulthood, the rates even out actually. So, but compared to males and females, you get a more of a one-to-one -one ratio. And there's different reasons for why this might be, but one of them is likely that adult women can report on their own symptoms and get their own referrals, right? Um, but when you're a girl, a kid with ADHD, you're really depending on other people to notice these symptoms and they're just harder to notice and get that referral for. 
So that's so interesting that you are saying that, you know, ADHD tends to look different in girls than boys. Can you break that down for us a little bit more and tell us like what other differences? Um, I know you mentioned mood, for example, what other differences do you see between girls with ADHD and boys with ADHD? Definitely. So girls with ADHD do tend to look different than boys with ADHD generally, but not always. They do seem to have more of those inattentive symptoms. And when I say inattentive symptoms, these are things like trouble staying focused for longer periods of time, easily getting distracted, uh, difficulty organizing. Those are kind of more of the things that we tend to see with with girls with ADHD compared to hyperactive and impulsive behaviors that we tend to see with boys. Um, Inattentive girls, they might kind of get labeled as, as spacey or seem kind of really forgetful, just often appear overwhelmed. Girls can absolutely also have those hyperactive and impulsive symptoms. And those girls might get called like tomboys because they're so active or, you know, what we also see with hyperactive impulsive girls is more of the kind of in sort of uh, verbal impulsivity. They tend to have more kind of intense uh, verbal activity compared to the intense physical activity that we see with boys. So that's one thing to kind of um, to think about for girls. Uh, girls are also, like I mentioned, more likely to have kind of those internalizing symptoms. So like anxiety and depression compared to boys with ADHD. Uh, there's also some research that indicates that girls with ADHD are more likely to have kind of what we call emotion dysregulation. So this is like the emotional ups and downs, right? Um, they're more likely to have those kinds of symptoms. We also tend to see that they have lower self-esteem um, compared to girls uh, without ADHD. Another thing for, for girls too is that the, the symptoms seem to present a little bit later or at least are noticed a little bit later in boys. Um, and so they might be more obvious kind of a little bit later into childhood. Uh, we also tend to see uh, around times of transitions those symptoms might crop up a little bit more. And when you think about it, a lot of times girls with ADHD have come up with these really amazing coping skills to kind of to work through these difficulties or mask these difficulties. And around these times of transitions, those those masks are harder to, to uphold. Okay. That's so interesting. So are there any early signs that parents can be looking for, you know, particularly in girls that might be a sign that an evaluation for ADHD might be a good idea? One of the things that we have to think about with ADHD that makes it kind of tricky, right, is that all of these symptoms are on a spectrum. Like all of us experience some of these symptoms some of the time. And so when we're thinking about ADHD, what we're really trying to understand are the frequency and intensity of these symptoms. And are these challenges happening more often for my child compared to what would be expected for their developmental level? Um, And so this is kind of hard to do, I think, as a parent, right? We typically only have you know, our kid or maybe a couple kids in the house to make those comparisons to. But I do think that, you know, in terms of just red flags, parents should should trust their gut, right? So, So if they feel like they are having to give much more support to their daughter for things that they feel like their daughter should be doing at their age, those are red flags that they should really take heed of and think about. So maybe they're having to give so many more reminders around transitions or they have to, you know, there's more injuries at home because their child is more active. So those are things that certainly parents should attend to. 
But I also really think a, an important red flag is the feedback that parents might be getting from other people in their child's lives who, who do kind of have this maybe more of a regular comparison point to other kids. So this might be like your child's teachers or coaches. Um, if they start to approach you, you about, you know, having to give lots of extra feedback to their child because they're missing information or they're requiring a lot more repetition of instructions in the classroom, or maybe they're having social difficulties with their friends, like they're being really intrusive and they're getting rejected on the playground, or certainly academic difficulties are a big red flag that parents often say is kind of their first alert that something might be a little bit different. I will say with academics, you know, again, with girls are really great maskers. And so they're working kind of extra hard oftentimes to compensate for any difficulties. So I would say that if you don't see those academic difficulties, it doesn't mean that there's not something there. One tool that I, I do like to mention to families that can be helpful when you're just keeping track of potential red flags is something called Take Note, and it's from understood.org. Um, and I really like this tool. Essentially what it is is a, is a place to kind of gather your thoughts and your notes, and it helps you keep track of any feedback that you have gotten along the way and just helped you keep it in one place so that when you do decide to approach a medical provider or a pediatrician, can you kind of have it all together? Okay. So is Take Note, is it an app or is it on their website? It's just on their website and it's, it's, it's not a very complex tool, but it's nice to have a little bit of a framework to kind of just keep all of the kind of information that you're thinking about and observing and also that you're, you're hearing from others. Okay. That sounds very helpful. What age would you suggest that parents should start worrying about looking for these signs? You know, those of us who have toddlers know that it's very common for them to not listen to us, to have to repeat directions, um, to kind of jump from one activity to the next. So, you know, observing a two-year-old, you might be like, yeah, they look like they have attention problems, but what age should parents really start being concerned and looking for these behaviors that may not be, you know, developmentally in line with their peers. Yes, this is so typical during these younger ages. Uh, kids are jumping from thing to thing, sometimes quite literally uh, from activity to activity, or it's really common for young kids to show impulsive behavior or have trouble focusing for longer periods of time. And it does make it difficult to diagnose ADHD at these younger ages. Um, sometimes, however, these behaviors or attention problems really do stand out compared to other kids their age. And these challenges seem to persist over time. So it's not just one teacher making one off comment. It's it's maybe a couple teachers over the course of, of several months or maybe even several years that are making observations. And also these, these behaviors may are really starting to cause some difficulties. So it's not uncommon that I talk to families where their young preschooler is, is, is getting kicked out of daycare or having like really hard times with socially with peers and not getting invited to birthday parties and starting to kind of notice those things. So it is absolutely possible to diagnose ADHD beginning in the preschool period. Younger children probably will require a bit more of um, kind of an evaluation that might be with a, with a more like a specialist, like a child psychologist or a developmental pediatrician. Uh, but it is absolutely possible to diagnose at these at these younger younger ages. So before they even el enter elementary school, um, I will say I've heard some providers say, "Oh, well, you can't diagnose ADHD till age six, or you can't diagnose till age seven. and and that's not the case. 
um, we can diagnose earlier. And, and it's really important. Um, early identification and early intervention can make such a big difference. Um, and so I really encourage parents to talk to their medical providers as soon as they have any, any early concerns. Okay. That is so helpful. I'm just wondering if you can give us a little bit of insight into what this evaluation diagnosis process looks like, because, you know, I think for a lot of parents, it seems kind of daunting and a little scary. So could you give us like a peek into what that might look like if you think that your child, you know, might need an evaluation? Definitely. Yes. And the evaluation process can absolutely feel overwhelming to families. You know, maybe the first, the first overwhelming thing is where to go and where to start. The first step is usually talking with your pediatrician. The, the pediatrician hopefully is someone who knows your kid, who knows your family, who has an idea of the kinds of things that have been coming up over the years. Pediatricians can make diagnoses of ADHD. They don't always do that for different reasons, but it is very possible that they, they could. Pediatricians might also refer you to another specialist. So like a psychologist or a developmental pediatrician, um, or maybe a, a psychiatrist. What an evaluation for ADHD looks like. So it, it will include rating scales. And so these are your questionnaires that parents will fill out. And you also will want to get questionnaires from someone else who also knows your kid well. So typically it's a teacher, but it could be somebody else. In addition to those rating scales, um, which, by the way, those rating scales will be able to kind of put some numbers and scores that compare your child's behavior to other same age children, which, again, is a big part of this evaluation, trying to figure out is what your child is experiencing really different from what would be expected for their their developmental level. In addition to rating scales, the big part of the evaluation is talking. Um, we do a lot of interviewing with parents and caregivers and also sometimes the child to get a really solid developmental history, understand what has been going on for your child over the years in terms of behavior and attention, but also just generally in terms of development, understanding how these symptoms have waxed and waned or what has been consistent over the years, and also really understanding what symptoms are happening now and in what settings, because we do want to make sure or want, want to see, are these symptoms happening in multiple settings? Another piece that will come out of that interview too is, are these difficulties contributing to that functional impairment that I mentioned? So are they really getting in the way for the child in some capacity? So with socially, academically, um, or emotionally. Another kind of component is that we have to see that there's no better explanation for these symptoms. So part of the evaluation might also include assessing for things like anxiety or depression, um, because if those might be better explanations, we certainly want to treat that first. So there may be some additional interviewing or rating skills around that. One point I also want to make here is that I often get the question, is there any kind of like test for ADHD or like some like computer test that we have to do? And it's a really good question. And right now there is not any sort of like one test that you do that tells you, do you have ADHD or not? Computer testing and also kind of like pencil and paper type testing, sometimes we call this psychoeducational testing, is actually not needed for an ADHD diagnosis. 
Um, so this is, if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics, this is not something that they recommend needing for a, an ADHD diagnosis. Sometimes those things can be helpful to better understand your child. But what you, again, what you really need are those rating skills and those that really um, thorough clinical interviewing. Okay. That, I think that really helps parents clear up exactly what it would look like. Um, so I hear a lot of parents say, you know, I'm nervous to get an evaluation because I'm worried about my child being labeled, you know, especially in school and by other children. And I would imagine that's even more of a concern for parents with girls because it isn't as common. So what would be your advice to those parents who, you know, are concerned about ADHD, but are also worried about their child having this, you know, potentially lifelong label? Yeah. Well, first I'd say that's really valid. Um, it is like, I think being a parent can be so overwhelming and you're just trying so hard to make sure that you're doing right by your kid. Putting a label on your child can feel scary. One of the things I talk to parents when, when this comes up is what would it mean to get this label? And also what would it mean to not get this label? Ultimately, you know, the label, no label doesn't change your daughter, right? Your daughter is, is who she is. She's you know her fabulous self, right? But the label itself doesn't actually change your daughter. What the label could do is, is open some doors to really help support her. And so I think that's where as scary as it can be to get a label, I think it can also be actually somewhat scary and maybe to a certain extent dangerous, sometimes not to get the label if it's not going to open those doors. This is a really, really great conversation to have with someone like certainly your pediatrician, or if you feel like you kind of, you know, sometimes I talk to families who say, well, I love our pediatrician, but we get these little, these little bits of time with them. And so it might be finding, you know, a therapist, even a, a you know, a, an individual therapist or, or someone, someone you can talk to, to really sort of flesh this out a bit more. You know, I think one thing I want to mention here too, is, as I, I said, some really scary things at the top of this interview about what it means or what could happen if we don't identify we don't uh, treat kids with ADHD. I think um, it is also important to mention, though, the flip side of uh, ADHD when it is identified and well-managed. I mean, people with ADHD can thrive. Uh, we hear a lot of people say that their ADHD brain allows them to see the world in a different way. We also know that, you know, this can allow people to have more energy to do things than it does when people don't have ADHD. Um, and so in some cases, it can really be an asset for people. You know, ADHD is not a disorder of intelligence and it's not a disorder uh, or something that limits what someone is capable of. There are highly successful, brilliant people with ADHD. Um, but we know that that really comes from when we can identify and manage it and, and well support people with ADHD. Because without that support, um, it, it really can be problematic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I think it's so important to remember those strengths, especially when you're thinking about your own child and like, what are the, what are the strengths associated with ADHD? Um, because there are so many. So you've talked a lot about how ADHD impacts social emotional development. And I think that's so interesting how it has this, you know, unique impact in girls. Is there anything that you think parents can do to help girls with their social skills, with their emotional regulation skills, and maybe also prevent some of the bullying that might come along 
with being a girl with ADHD, particularly when it's less common. And, you know, a lot of her girl peers may not have ADHD and be able to relate to her struggles. Definitely. And, and yes, I mean, we, we know we have data to support that, that, that often is the experience of kids with ADHD, that they, they tend to kind of um, have fewer friendships or less stable relationships. They are more likely to get rejected by peers and be kind of the victims of bullying. Um, and we see this particularly when, when girls have that combined presentation. So again, kind of the chat, the, that combination of inattentive symptoms and hyperactive impulsive symptoms, but parents can, can certainly support this. One thing to think about is these challenges that we see socially related to ADHD limit a child's ability to have those positive social interactions that we know kids need both to feel good, but also to learn, right? To learn, oh, this is what you do in a social interaction. And so one thing that parents might consider doing is kind of, you know, basically sort of doing a little bit of structuring of how do I make sure that my child is getting those positive social interactions, getting that chance to learn from others. So for younger kids, this might look like maybe some additional play dates with, um, with certain kids. Um, it might also look like some additional kind of structured social interactions. So this could be like clubs or uh, sports, you know, Girl Scouts, soccer, art club, things like that, that kind of gives a little bit more structure to the social interaction, but allows girls to have that, that positive experience too. Um, some kids might need a little bit more. So maybe there's something a little bit more like, um, we sometimes talk about like didactic instruction. And essentially this is just getting some more like specific uh, feedback and learning around social interactions. And so that might come from some schools have things like lunch bunches. So they get together some kids at the lunchtime who might all be learning um, a little bit more about social interactions, or certainly there are social skills groups that uh, mental health providers sometimes offer. And this again, kind of gives uh, girls with ADHD as well as kind of similar kids with similar sort of presentations, a chance to, to learn how to engage socially and appropriately. As girls get older and move into adolescence, it is definitely harder for parents to, to do more uh, kind of uh, management or manipulation around the social interactions. And I think here, part of it is, is just making sure that you're kind of keeping those lines of communication open with your daughter. So talking about their friendships, talking about what do they like in other people? What do they admire in, in their friends? And what do they look for in relationships? It, it certainly can also be, you know, finding um, an individual therapist for your daughter so that she has space to kind of talk a little bit more about her social relationships. And this, again, could be hard to do with a parent. And so having this outside person can also be helpful. Okay. That is all very helpful. Um, so is there anything parents should think about, keep in mind as their a girl with ADHD gets older? Um, are there any changes that occur, you know, over the lifespan, like with puberty, for example, that parents should keep in mind? Yeah. So, so generally ADHD symptoms, they do seem to shift uh, in terms of their um, kind of presentation over time. And so what I mean by that is that when we look at the literature, oftentimes hyperactive and impulsive symptoms tend to tone down over the lifespan, while inattentive symptoms kind of tend to turn up a little bit over the lifespan. And so that's just sort of a general picture. It doesn't apply to everyone, but that's what we see um, kind of the, the most common patterns. Mm -hmm. um, and so for girls, we still see that kind of fluctuation sometimes in symptoms. When you get to adolescence with girls, what you might see are kind of 
more challenges with academic functioning, you know, more challenges with peer relationships and some potential more risk-taking behaviors. Um, I mentioned earlier, there is a higher co-occurrence of anxiety and depression. And since those things seem tend to onset often during the teen years, definitely with your girl with ADHD, it'll be something to kind of keep an extra eye on. Also, you mentioned puberty. There is some, some interesting emerging research looking at the role of hormones and ADHD symptoms. And it's really early, so it's it's kind of hard to draw any real conclusions at the moment, but there is data that's coming out that's indicating that ADHD symptoms do tend to fluctuate over the course of the menstrual cycle. So it's just something to think about with your with your adolescents of you you may see some changes in their symptoms over over the course of the month. Um, and it could be helpful for your daughter to kind of keep track of those things uh, just so, so she's able to report on them herself. As we think kind of older into adulthood, what we find is that you know these these rates vary a little bit in the literature, but about 65% of kids and teens with ADHD will continue to meet criteria in adulthood. Um, so the majority of people continue to be adults with ADHD. And I will say here, I, I do want to make clear that we we don't think of ADHD as a disorder that people typically kind of, you know, quote, grow out of. Um, it really is something that we we see as kind of this chronic condition over time. There can be a variety of reasons why people might not meet criteria in adulthood. And one of them might be that they oftentimes adults with ADHD go into professions that really meet their their needs, right? We it's very common to see adults with ADHD who are in kind of fast-paced, exciting work environments. So they no longer have that job of sitting in the classroom and listening to a lecture, right? They're able to be in an environment that is stimulating and move around. So I'll just say that, that, that these are symptoms that will probably wax and wane and change with their presentation, but it's likely that these symptoms will probably be present for your daughter to a certain extent as she gets older. And the hope is that she will continue to learn coping skills and have good intervention options at um, her disposal to help her manage over time. I love that positive perspective. Um, I think that can be really helpful to parents. Um, so let's talk about treatment. So we've all heard about medication for ADHD, but what else would you recommend in terms of treatment? And do you ever recommend that parents try these non-medical interventions before medication? And how do parents know when it is time to consider medication? Because I think that's a big choice as a parent. Definitely. These are really, really good questions. So, so the good news is that we have multiple evidence-based treatments for ADHD, and our data tells us they work just as well in girls as they do for boys, which is great. I do want to just highlight medication for just a moment, just because when we look at the American Academy of Pediatrics, their guidelines, their frontline, or basically their, their first step in treatment is for, for kids six and above, is to, is to try a stimulant medication. Um, so we, we do have a really strong evidence base to support using medication to reduce ADHD symptoms. And for a lot of people, medication will likely be a part of that, that treatment puzzle. Um, what I always recommend to parents is to talk with their providers and just get all of the information that they can to make an informed choice about that. That's just one, one thing to mention about medicine. But we do absolutely have behavioral interventions that um, have a good evidence-based too. One of the largest uh, longitudinal studies, and that just means looking at looking at the same sample over time, uh, that looked at this and tried to answer the question, 
of what is the most effective treatment for kids with ADHD, um, what they found was they had kids who just took medicine, then they had kids who had combination treatment, which meant medicine plus behavior therapy. And both of those, both of those groupings were very effective at reducing ADHD symptoms. And in addition, that combination group actually had some additional positive outcomes even compared to the, just the medication only group. So they saw reduced anxiety symptoms, improved academic performance, stronger parent-child relationships, and also better social skills. Um, and so that that is also another plug for thinking about the role of, of behavioral therapy. That group also ended up taking lower doses of medicine over time, which is interesting. Would I ever consider behavior therapy first before treatment? Definitely. In certain cases, I think this makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the kinds of things that, that I'd be thinking about as a clinician and that parents can be thinking about is kind of just where, how much impairment, right? How much are these symptoms really messing things up right now for your child? How much are they getting in the way? I think for kids where symptoms are causing them to feel really down on themselves, to feel really anxious, they're really not able to show what they know in school. And this is like, really weighing on them, those are the kids that I might say, you know what, I don't know if we want to wait for the effects of behavior therapy. We might need something a little sooner. But if those things are not at play, it could totally make sense to start with behavior therapy first. Um, behavior therapy just in general is going to take longer, right? So you might not see the effects until a little bit later. And if you have that ability to, to wait a little bit longer, that that might might be something to consider. There's actually one study that I'm aware of that actually looked at this. They had one group start with medicine and one group start with behavior therapy, and they saw how they were doing. And then if they weren't responding, they switched them in the end. And ultimately, the group that started with behavior therapy ended up, they, they did see that um, uh, kind of lower rates of, of challenges in the classroom. And also the, the families were more engaged in treatment compared to the folks who started with medicine. Now, this is one study. <laughs> it's just one. It'd be great to get more. Also, that study was vast majority of the of the participants were male. So you have to interpret it, interpret it with some grain of salt. But I do think there is absolutely times when when starting with behavior therapy would make a lot of sense. And also, just to be clear, when I'm talking about behavior therapy, what do I mean? So for elementary school age kids, what I'm really talking about here is something called behavioral parent training or parent management training. And what this is, is an approach to treatment, which really works with parents and caregivers to help structure the environment in such a way to really help kids meet expectations more consistently. And when I say environment, what I mean is it can be the actual physical environment, but it can also be what parents are saying in certain ways or how they do certain things, again, that can help kids meet expectations more consistently. As kids get older, behavior therapy might be something called organizational skills training. Um, and it could also, there also could be a role also for some individual therapy around um, maybe uh, some other types of things like anxiety and depression. We do have um, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT for ADHD um, for, for kind of older adolescents and adults. Okay. That is so helpful for parents to know all these different treatment options and to know that, you know, there is a non-medical option out there and it has been shown to be very effective by research. So thank you so much, Dr. Schechter. This has been so incredibly helpful. And I think, you know, a lot of parents who are wondering about ADHD or have a child diagnosed with ADHD will really find this so valuable. 
Um, can you tell parents where they can find um, more information about your center or more information about ADHD in general if they do need some additional resources? Absolutely. Our website is ADHDgirlsandwomen.org. So on the website, you'll find educational resources um, and links to other uh, materials, evidence-based materials. We don't offer clinical support at the center. It's just um, educational resource and outreach, but we do have a link on our page that sends you to another really great resource that I love to promote, which is CHAD, that's C-H-A-D-D.org. And that stands for Children and Adults with ADHD. And that is a really fantastic resource that can connect folks to, to clinical, clinical services, but also has just a wealth of information um, about supporting individuals with ADHD over the lifespan. Um, so I would definitely recommend folks go, go there as well. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Schechter. I really appreciate your time and your expertise on this topic. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Parenting Translator is a nonprofit organization, so all of these podcasts and the information they provide are given to you for free. If you would like to support our work, please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it. Thank you so much.